Hello and welcome to Big Ben History, a series of conversations with people in the cabinet room when Margaret Thatcher sobbed her way through her resignation statement in November 1990. William Waldegrave was the Iron Lady's last cabinet appointment. In the same month she fell, he was made health secretary. Within days, he went from running the diplomatic effort at the Foreign Office to oust Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, to joining the cabinet, to being asked face-to-face, like all her cabinet ministers, whether she should carry on after Michael Heseltine had forced a second ballot on her leadership. It was a surreal few days, the pace of which left impressions rather than detailed memories, and deep regrets that something so momentous unfolded in such a brutal fashion. Waldegrave served a further seven years in the cabinet and had previously been a linchpin in Ted Heath's private office when he was Prime Minister. But we began, as always, with one of his very first cabinet meetings, which began with Margaret Thatcher announcing her resignation. I was the most junior member of the cabinet, only just appointed a few weeks before. Um, And I remember the atmosphere of the evenings before and around that event, the sort of febrile, very unpleasant sort of atmosphere. I thought of a mixture of excitement and glee and despair and that sort of feeling of, of um, you know, lots of jackals circling around this big wounded animal. Very unpleasant, I thought. And I, rem- I, rem- I, I, I remember the meeting, I suppose, no differently than anybody. Well, I suppose everybody has their different memories. I, I remember um, the Lord Chancellor... James Mackay um, taking over the statement when she couldn't continue, and a sort of tense and a, a strange atmosphere because, of course, um, I think we knew when we went into the room what was going to happen. So it it was a it was a strange and very tragic <laughs> is the word. Event, but the actual meeting was in some ways almost a an anticlimax. I think because we knew that she was now going to go and that she she'd been driven out, and then mixed in with it, of course, there was the excitement of the people who were, were maneuvering for the next position already. The main thing I remember is that we then, or a good many of us, went to um, the memorial service in Westminster Abbey in the choir of Westminster Abbey for Sir Alec Douglas Hume's widow, Libby Douglas Hume. So people sort of went across there and for an hour were sitting separately in stalls, unable to talk to each other, uh, unable to plot, singing um, All Things Bright and Beautiful. I mean, it was a, a very strange sort of contrast. That must have been a surreal juxtaposition. It was a surreal juxtaposition. Um, and I still think... Although it's perfectly constitutional in our position for a um, prime minister to be removed by the opposition of the of the uh, of the party that's put her there, I still think it would have been more fitting if she'd been defeated by the electorate. And you'd been in the cabinet for three, four weeks. I, I think it was only about three weeks. Yes, I, I was appointed after Geoffrey Howe resigned. Um, Geoffrey Howe, and uh, then people moved moved uh, across. Um, and I, um, I'd been working very, very, very hard as Minister of State in the Foreign Office, really the Minister for the Preparation of the War um, in the Gulf. This was the, driving the Iraqis out of Kuwait, a really well-organized operation with all, all the allies lined up and so on. I had the privilege of often chairing the Preparation for War Committee. 
And so I was working flat out, not getting, you know, much deeper, going across the number 10 all the time. So I went across on one occasion. Um, I was summoned, as I'd been all the time, and <laughs> appointed Secretary of State for Health, which wasn't what I expected at all. And she said to me, as I put in my little book, um, uh, Kenneth has stirred them all up. I want you to calm them all down. You look as if you need a whiskey. I'll have one myself. Uh, that's what I remember about that interview, <laughs> which was typical of the sort of fun of working for her. I mean, I was not a natural ally of hers in many ways, but it was impossible not to ad admire her. Um, and I think it was wrong the way she was disposed of. And, w and when you went, went in there, what, three weeks before her fall, what, was it on your mind at all that she was... Um dying politically? Well, I'd been working so hard that I'd been sort of missing I'd, missing the events because um, it was it really was 24-7, um, the, the work, uh, um, as the Minister of State and the Foreign So I, I, I wasn't in the House to hear Geoffrey Howe's famous speech. Um, I, um, uh, so I think I sort of probably missed some of the build-up, but I remember the last two or three days before um, there was a, a meeting in in Tristan Garrell Jones's house of the by then defunct blue chips dirty dozen whatever were called the seventy nine intake group of of MPs that Chris and John Major and I organised into which Alan Clark forced his way uninvited and I remember in the House of Commons that that night I think uh, going into a room uh, one of those meeting rooms below the chamber. Uh, by mistake, I, uh, I was looking at some other room and finding myself in a room with a whole lot of white-faced um, uh, real Thatcherites uh, led by Norman Tebbit. Um, and there was a sort of very strange atmosphere. Um, but she was done in really, not by her opponents um, uh, attacking her, her opponents had always attacked her, but by her closest allies, um, uh, deserting her. I still think she could have fought on, actually. But in those terrible one-to-one -one meetings, which I, of course, as the most junior cabinet minister, was the last, um, I, I said that I would go on voting for her, but that I had a very unhelpful phrase. I said, I think people are running around like headless chickens out there. Um, and they were. And the people who mattered, really, uh, were her natural allies, like Peter Lilly and people like that, who told her she shouldn't go on, I think. Um, and you said in your book, you, you used the phrase, we'd all agreed, and, that, and Mrs. Thatcher certainly in her memoirs thought that you'd all got together and agreed. That's essentially, agree a phrase of words that leaves her with no choice but to go. Um, was there a sort of cabinet line, uh, even though you saw a one-to-one, -one, that will support you, but we think you'll lose? I think that was probably right, yes. Well, I think it was the truth. She was incredibly badly served, as many others have said, by her PPSs and her immediate advisors, I think. And th there should have been more, more actual politics going on from her side. I think she thought, by the, she thought it was pretty inconceivable that people would be so disloyal. Um, but well, Were you surprised? Were you surprised when you got the first ballot? Were you surprised that it's 150 MPs yeah. had voted against her? Uh, I, I think I was, yeah. I think I thought she'd, she'd get through. She was going to have been wounded, and that would have been much better. If she'd been wounded and then enabled to make her own choice of when to leave, it would have been far more dignified, really.
Um, you work very closely with Jeffrey Howe, and obviously the implosion of that relationship central to this whole drama. Uh, how did the, the collapse in relations between those two, what was it like from your perspective? One was certainly aware of the breakdown of uh, watching from a, an outer circle. I was never in, in an inner circle of hers. Um, uh, the breakdown in, in relations with Jeffrey Howe, she t- treated him very badly and insultingly often. And I was present at cabinet committees and things where, you know, it, it, it wasn't right. Um, I mean, she brought her her own trouble on her own head by not being a little more skillful in how she handled powerful people. And I suppose that it's easy to say now was partly because she'd lost the 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 the, the inner circle of people whom she did really trust. The, um, uh, from the beginning, um, and sh- and she didn't have the stalwart backup. But many people have said this of people who weren't really interested so much in the ideological divide, but were interested in keeping an, a, a good and efficient government going, like Willie Whitelaw. I mean, it's always dangerous playing amateur psychologist. But can you understand why if Thatcher treated how the way she did? It always struck me as rather stupid. Yes, I mean, uh, it was foolish, and it was almost. It was almost to do with his style more than the content. After all, he'd been the crucial person in 80 and 81 and 82, and his budget had really laid the, when the 357 economists uh, said it was wrong and everything, and actually he laid the the basis for the economic recovery. Um, And it was almost a sort of impatience with his style as as much as anything, which is foolish of her. And, I mean... You know, famously Churchill used to not get on with Mountbatten, but I mean, when it mattered, he would bite his tongue and get on with Mountbatten. Um, and um, she, she should have been bigger than that, really. What was she like? I mean, what was she like with you? Because uh, I mean, your associations with Ted Heath and so on. Uh, how did she treat you during your career? She was totally forgiving of all that. She, um, uh, unlike Ted. Um, I mean, she believed there was something called the Conservative Party, and we were all working for the Conservative Party. And, of course, we worked for the previous leader. Uh, I resigned from her private office before... I mean, because I was the head of the leader of the opposition's private office, I resigned, making a rather bitter but loyal speech to Ted Heath, saying that it was a disgrace that people had stood against him and so on. And she totally forgave me for that. You, You know, she didn't mind people being loyal to their bosses. And she was always kind to me. I mean, she kept me as a junior minister for a very long time. In retrospect, I would have liked to have been promoted a bit earlier. would probably have been a better minister if I had been promoted a bit earlier because you can get bored with being a junior minister for 10 years. Um, but uh, she was always respectful to me, and she looked after me in various crises with great uh, loyalty, um, which made one very fond of her in that way. Um, and then, so, how do you explain this um, this desertion or whatever? Was it was it a panic? Was it a nervous breakdown, or was it just the, the sheer contemplation of losing an election in for the first time in thirteen? Or what was it? Ten years. I, I think there was a feeling that there were various signals she sent out, which began to cause people to raise eyebrows, going on and on and on that remark. Um, there was a moment in the House of Commons when 
She accused poor old Kinnick of being worse than the communists or something or other. Crypto communists. Crypto communists. And we all, uh, come on, you know, Neil, <laughs> Neil's not a, poor old Neil was never, you know, you, I, mean, I like Neil Kinnick, patriotic man and a good man. And, you know, he wasn't a crypto communist. And one began to feel that there was just a losing of touch with reality a bit. Um, of course, there was the poll tax, which I was associated with, but that had been—that's a funny one in a way, because it had been put in a green paper before an election. It had been put in a manifesto. It had been voted on in a successful election in '87. All the cabinet and all the cabinet committee, with the exception of Heseltine and the Treasury, had approved it. Um, and she sort of thought that this was another of those battles where all Swadizon sort of Amstead opinion was against her and if she could see it through it would be okay and of course if the treasury had helped her it could have been okay because if they hadn't cut all the grants to local authorities at the same time as it coming in so that it came in at a lower level or even came in as an additional tax it could have worked but there were quite a lot of people trying to make it not work so that I don't think it was mad of her to go for the poll tax it was just that she wasn't helped in the way it was introduced um, though it wasn't a very good policy, as I've written in my book. It's got inherent flaws in it. Um, but it wasn't so much specific policy things. It was the feeling that she was, was she slightly losing her grip, you know. Um, people looking at each other when she was, went over the top in question time, and sort of thinking, Christ, you know, shouldn't she stop? And people beginning to think she's... She, but people longing for her voluntarily to stand down, as I think possibly... Her husband wanted her to stand down. And that, but it's so difficult for people to do that. Churchill didn't do it. I mean, you know, he went on and on because he couldn't see any successor who was any good and he turned out to be right in his case. Um, Margaret Thatcher said to, Doug, <laughs> to Douglas Hurd, um, Major, and Margaret said to Douglas, he was the best of a bad lot, not remembering that Douglas was another candidate. Was one of the lots. <laughs> And as, as very, I was talking to Charles Pohl about um, Europe, and he, I thought that this would be sort of top yeah. of his entree as a foreign affairs advisor. And he said, "Well, of course, I spent most of my time dealing with the Cold War, yeah. and actually, absolutely, um, you know, the Cold War, and then the build-up to the Iraq War, which was a wonderful operation in which Charles Pohl was the absolutely central person because he was the only person in Whitehall totally trusted by the Americans, and he." The whole of that alliance, which included Japan, Syria, you know, Saudis, the French even sent their useless aircraft carrier. I mean, everybody was on side. And Charles Pohl was, in international terms, the linchpin of that. And but, that deserves huge credit. Right? But does that suggest, um, it, it's very easy to see the, the, the fall of Thatcher as the beginning of the Tory Civil War over Europe. Yeah. Does that suggest actually it, it wasn't that really? Geoffrey Howe chose to make it about that, but actually was it about more the things well, you've talked about so far? I think the I think the un, I, I think the, the the division about Europe was beginning, but I think we are. Re, I think you're right. It, it's very easy to read it with hindsight as being all about Europe. The, and as I said earlier, the mysterious thing to me is that Nigel Lawson, who was an adamant opponent of the euro later on and became a great Eurosceptic. What on earth was he doing jumping her in Lisbon into, into the ERM, which everybody knew was a, was a, a, a stage into the euro and was a bit meaningless if it wasn't. 
Because it certainly wasn't a good way of fighting inflation at home. I mean, you can't fix the exchange rate on an external basis to fight inflation. You know, the Treasury should do that by itself. So uh, that's the mystery to me as to why... I mean, Jeffrey was a, was a, a consistent pro-European all the way through, but why Jeffrey and, and Nigel Lawson made that alliance at that time is always mysterious to me. But that's, uh, you know, I'm sure there are explanations for it. Um, you were in the cabinet for another seven years through the, 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 the ups and downs of the major years. How, how much was what happened in 1990 responsible for the travails of John Major? Quite a lot. I mean, I think that... A leader, when you've had a very, very dominant leader <laughs> um, whose personality, not so much policy, has dominated everything, when that leader is gone, there's a huge vacuum, not of policy necessarily, but of, of the sort of, uh, uh, there's an absence of the power that kept it all together. And it was her personality that kept it all together through the tough times. So that when that personality went, it wasn't so much that there was a rapid change of policy, um, because actually John Major uh, negotiated well at Maastricht, kept us out of the euro, kept us out of, you know, she wouldn't have done much different, I don't think. Um, she certainly wouldn't have started taking us out of Europe at that time. She would have been trying to distance herself from the, from the euro and from the social chapter, which he did. So I don't think it's so much about policy. It's about the fact that that um, it's rather like, I don't know, when Alexander the Great died, all these generals fell to warring with each other because they needed the leadership of that great charismatic figure and they didn't know how to handle it without... Sorry to sound like Boris for a moment, but you know what I mean. When you've had a leader absolutely dominant, to which all the iron filings point, <laughs> when that leader goes, it's very difficult for anyone else to restructure it. And John Major didn't do, did, in retrospect, rather well, I think, keeping... Uh, and, uh, and and people then made their separate tribal sorts of identities by uh, by finding policy differences, <laughs> um, whereas she would have bashed their heads together and stopped all that. Um, so that it was the lack of the of the of the power at the centre. I, I, I mean, I'm sure one can find other historical analogies for that. It's more to do with the fact that she was an incredibly dominant, centralising leader. Everything she was hugely hardworking, knew all the detail of everything. And when that was when that was removed, you can't suddenly go back to a sort of committee structure, social, you know, everybody getting on together. Everyone says, "Where's the leader?" Well, Robin Butler described the first cabinet meeting after she left, and he said it was like uh, the prisoners' chorus in Fidelio. <laughs> yes, it was in a way. The wonderful feeling, and John Major sitting down saying, "Well, who'd have thought it?" I think he said, or something like that. Um, and then he went out to the other extreme. Really, he was constantly taking votes, and you know, he'd get something agreed in cabinet, and then he'd look around and say, "Has anybody got any reason to? Any, anybody want to make any disagreement?" So then somebody would perk up and argue with him. So we'd have to go back to the start again. Um, he went too far the other way, honourably, and he was a much better leader um, than than he was given credit for at the time, and I think history will write him up rather well, actually. Um, but um, it, it, it was was the, the prisoners coming out into the light, but the prisoners coming out into the light often find it a little bit difficult to know what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this is just an observation that you see now. Um, it's incredibly hard to get rid of leaders. Mm. Um, it's extraordinary. I just wonder, this is just an observation of whether 
everybody's learned from Maggie, you know, Theresa May, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Jeremy Corbyn. There, there is a Klingon ability that the, 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 the Iron Lady didn't have herself. Yeah, o- 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 <laughs> occupation is, well, she'd hung on for a pretty long time. Of course. She had been there a long time. And that was part of it. There was part of it, people saying, you just can't go on forever. And that on and on and on comment did panic people a bit. Um, but Sir Robert Walpole went on and on and on. He was bloody cross when he was thrown, thrown out, finally. Um, but the younger went on a long time. I mean, people can go on, but if they're going to go on a long time, they've got to pay a little more attention to the dark arts of politics, which by then she slightly despised and which she didn't have uh, the Airy Neves and people of the beginning or the Norman Tebbits and the Willie Whitelaws and people to do for her. I'm no good getting Peter Morrison to do it, you know, and... Um, lots of sort of slightly sycophantic people around is very different. So she she didn't she wasn't doing to to go on through that great school around the poll text and around she would have had to exercise political skills, which she was still exercising formidably on the international stage, well advised by people like Charles Pell. Um, but it sort of got bored with at home, I think, or didn't have the people to do it. Yeah, so she always didn't want a campaign anymore, yeah, I think. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Two, two more questions. Uh, first of all, do you think she could have beaten Kinnock in 92 or 91, whenever? Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> turning point of that election was um, my friend Mr. Koletsky on the, um, the Times Economic Correspondent who'd published an article having calculated what his own income tax was going to be under under John Smith's proposals for putting up all the taxes, whereupon every journalist did the same sums, whereupon it was quite remarkable how uh, people began to concentrate on what it all meant. And I remember meeting, you know, the archetypal constituent. You know, I met one, I wrote about him in my book when I knew we were going for a catastrophe in 1997. And there was one on that occasion in 92 when... It wasn't predicted that we would win, but I remember a guy washing his car in, um, down in the flats on the edge of the Bristol docks saying, oh, I, <laughs> you know, I've always voted David, but you can't vote for that guy, can you? Now, it was totally unfair, because Neil's a good guy in many respects, but people, people thought it wasn't really serious and so on. And that famous rally, which where he was trying to do exactly the opposite. There's an irony of history now. He wasn't trying to make a great celebration. He was trying to calm the celebration down, I'm told. But it all came across as tramplies. And they were too confident. And somehow people just didn't think of him as being prime ministerial material. Perhaps unfairly, but they didn't. She could have gone on and on. And then she finally, yeah. Mo- I think she could have done that. Yes. Most people tell me she uh, would have been a Remainer. I wonder what you think. <laughs> I think it's very difficult to tell. I think she probably possibly would have been because she wasn't frightened of Europe. She could she could put down red lines on things, and they believed her. It, it, when one was negotiating in Europe for the British government at that time, which I endlessly was on really boring things like I don't know vehicle exhaust or whatever, she was worth an extra. 20% on whatever you were negotiating for. Because if the British, if some little pipsqueak of a junior minister said, I'm afraid the British government's not going to agree to that, they'd all say, oh, Christ, he's got orders from Maggie. You know, we'll have to give it to him. They, 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 they believed it. She was really helpful in that way. And I don't think she would have, I think she would have regarded leaving as a sort of running away. I think she would have said, well, are we friend of these people? I mean, her... 
her analysis that a unified Germany would be very powerful and that they would use the uh, the, the euro to keep, the, as it were, the value of the Deutsche Mark down to help their exports is exactly right. That's exactly what's happened to the cost of the Greeks and the Italians and everybody else. Um, and and that they would use a social chapter to try and put costs on everybody else. But um, she would have been just as effective at John Major of getting us out of the social chapter. She would have kept us out of the euro and she would have caused havoc and annoyance and trouble for them and a whole range of other things where the whole thing would have been moved a bit the British way. And I think she might have had the confidence. Why I, I didn't vote to go into Europe, but why I voted to remain was just you just have to do the demography. 25 years' time, we're the biggest economy in Europe, not because we're more productive, but because we've got more people. Why not wait till we run the bloody thing? That's, I think she might have thought like that. What a great moment to end on. Thank you so much. <laughs>